0: we built for survival. It seemed like every six months there was some existential crisis. And really it was, hey, you are going to run out of money. And we have a pretty capital-efficient business model. You know, you're acquiring a customer that's paying up front and your biggest marginal cost is customer acquisition costs. So like, it's pretty, pretty capital-efficient business. But literally since 2012, there's been a period of time where you're like, is this going to make it? I just want to be able to have the conversation if we didn't do this in a scalable way um, while we're still employed by this company. Hi, I'm Blake Garrett, founder and CEO of Aceable.
1: This is Code Story, a podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead. A team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Labhart, and today how Blake Garrett built the best online course platform for compliance-related education. All this and more on Code Story. Blake Garrett had the good fortune to grow up in the Bay Area. He got to observe his father and his involvement in startups. Though none of them were massive successes, his dad would bring him around, and he got to watch him bring together teams of really smart people to solve customer problems. Blake was a sports player growing up, mainly basketball and football. He was starting quarterback in football for a while, then transitioned to playing safety, though he admits that his heart was still into playing offense. He's married with a two-year-old and one more on the way, so he's a busy dude. Blake decided he wanted to execute on one of his ideas. He taught himself several key areas to get himself started and built a handful of mobile apps. Post this, he pitched an idea to some investor friends of his, which ultimately they turned his idea down. However, they saw potential within the focal areas of his ideas and gave him some advice on how to proceed. Once he nailed down the required learning market that could be translated to mobile experience, he was able to finally take off. This is the creation story of Aceable.
0: The easiest way to articulate it is we make online and mobile-first courses for compliance-related education. We started with driver's ed. We took the boring classroom experience and turned it into a mobile app with a really engaging story, some social mechanics, light game mechanics, to make it far more interesting, far more effective for for teen learners, and ultimately to replace that painful 30-hour experience that that, that they have in the classroom with something they could do on their phone in between pockets of life when they might have the time. But the idea was that from there, let's build a platform to create that content upon, deliver that content, but then also go into more compliance-like courses. So our second area that we entered was real estate education. If you want to become a real estate agent in every state in the country, you have to take a course. Uh, It has to be approved by a regulatory agency, and then from there you have to take additional education at a predictable frequency of every two years, typically, um, to maintain that through continuing education. This type of education, about 50 million Americans do it a year, Um, and we thought it was very overlooked and an awesome place to, to make more engaging, accessible and effective for people at the end of the day. My dad's advice to me was, hey, if you study accounting in college, you'll always understand how a business works. I took his advice at face value studied accounting. After that, as one does when you study accounting in college, you go work for one of the big four accounting and consulting firms. I ended up being there for about six years, learned a lot that was incredibly helpful in starting a business, just indirectly so. At the end of that six years, I was the kid, the guy in my 20s that would be at the cocktail party. I don't know. I always say cocktail party in the story, but no one went to cocktail parties in their 20s. I'd be drinking beers with my friends, <laughs> talking about all my ideas that I had that I was never actually going to turn into a business. So the day Instagram bought, I'm sorry, Facebook bought Instagram for a billion dollars, I think the whole world was kind of like, wait, a billion dollars, no revenue, 13 employees, like what's going on here? And I was like, you know what? Apparently, it's just that easy to create a billion-dollar company. You know, little did I know. But I was like, all right, I'm gonna do it. So. That night, I came up with an idea to make a mobile charades game that uh, was gonna be like the app, Draw Something, which was quite popular in 2012. So I was like, cool. So I spent every night and weekend teaching myself everything about starting a company. I had to teach myself UX. I had to teach myself mobile app design. I needed an engineer. So I had to go from like zero to 60. During that time though, I also convinced some friends to invest in this mobile video charades game. Thankfully, they were dumb enough to invest, but the best part of that is, you know, putting so many balls in motion or plates spinning in the air. Like, I was terrified I would lose their money, so it was this extra level of motivation to get this done. I started going through a lot of different ideas, all with the idea of content being the core of whether it was video content that was user-generated then I started thinking about things in the news space, how to how to gamify news discovery and consumption. And eventually I found my way to books, specifically nonfiction books and training material and gamifying that content. So from the summer of what 2012 to the summer of 2013, I went through a series of awful ideas, all in this idea of gamifying content. By the summer of 2013, I'd actually launched a couple mobile apps I took the book The Expectant Father and turned it into a trivia app so soon-to-be dads could play this trivia game instead of, it seemingly was a good idea. Uh, The problem though is it only made about $5 a day. The first day of making $5 for the first time when you start a company is super cool. The second day, it's okay. The third day you realize you have a problem. I had gotten into the Capital Factory Accelerator program in Austin, which is a incubator accelerator program down here that's grown a lot and scaled a lot since then. And as a result of it, I started just immersing myself with different mentors. July, 2013, I went to a dinner with, with two different with two angel investors. One of them said, hey, if the other guy invests, I'll invest. Cool. I just got to convince one guy to invest, and it ended up being $100,000 in investment, which was so critical because at that point, $75,000 I had raised from friends was gone. Uh, I had about $50,000 of credit card debt. <laughs> I was kind of at the line of like, is it time to go beg for my job at Ernst & Young back? So I go to this dinner and I start pitching the one guy that I need to convince and about three minutes in he just looks at me and says, this is an awful idea, no one is going to invest in this. For the rest of dinner, I listened to these two guys who are now friends, but they've, they've both been incredibly successful in life talk about, let's just say, the problems of the incredibly successful. While meanwhile, I'm sitting there like eating a taco, thinking about my $10,000 minimum payment credit card bill that's due in two days. At the end of dinner, though, the guy that tells me I'm an idiot says, Hey, you know, you're not a complete idiot. And he says, you know, the idea of using mobile and education is interesting. The idea of social mechanics and game mechanics, that's interesting. Can you do it for things people have to learn? Because no one has to buy your stupid trivia game for dads in order to have a baby. But if they had to buy it, you'd sell a lot, 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 lot more of it. So what are areas or what are markets that have that dynamic of you have to take it from an education perspective? And I honestly, I didn't remember that advice for two days. I went home. I was super, super depressed. I thought it was all over. At, but at the end of the two days, I was like, cool, I have two options. I can listen to what, what Andrew said or I can go back for my job back. Thankfully, I decided to listen to what Andrew said. I then thought about, okay, well, what market would want to learn on mobile or what, what market segments of teenagers, demographic teenagers made a lot of sense. And then what do teenagers have to learn that's not K through 12 education? Because I didn't have time to go sell to school districts. So Z ed made, made a lot of sense. Once I was able to say, Hey, we're going to start with this very winnable, not huge market, but very winnable market of driver's ed. This is how big it can be. As we start looking at all these other occupations that have similar dynamics, it became so much easier to raise money. So from there I was able to raise money. And by March or April, 2014, we had launched our first product. You know, a whole new set of adversity set in at that point, but it was off into the races
1: let's dive into that first product that and maybe you call that your mvp or maybe there's a little bit before you decide but tell me about the mvp how long it took you to build and what sort of tools you used to bring it to life
0: we'll call the trivia games the mvp even though like in my brain i still remember the meeting where i was talking to i had a contract ios developer and i was talking to him his name's mark and he actually still works at aceful today and i was like mark like we just take the trivia game and like I had already bridged how we take what we have and make it what we need for this other thing. And of course, in my mind, the bridge was not very long. <laughs> and I just remember Mark looking at me, he's like, we have to start from scratch. There's nothing we just created that's gonna actually be useful <laughs> for what we're trying to do now. I was like, okay, but how fast can we do it? So when we built sort of like the first version of this, you know, mobile education course delivery app, um, there was a service that unfortunately doesn't exist today. I have to imagine there's better alternatives, but there was a service called Parse. It was one of the first, like, back end as a service companies that we were able to build mobile apps on really, really easily. I could actually configure the back end, which I'm not technical, so that was huge and it really was really beneficial to our business. Uh, unfortunately, I think two years later, a year and a half later, Facebook ended up buying Parse, and then a year later they shut it all down. That was disappointing, but Parse was a big piece of that um, early MVP from a. Uh, from a backend tools perspective, um, Mixpanel was a big lifesaver on the front end because it really gave us the opportunity to engage with our customers in a lightweight, easy way. So that was another one that, that played a big role. And that was also the goal, the cool sort I of, had like, I don't know, called the quote unquote glory days of Facebook advertising. Like we could get very targeted with our advertising for mobile app install ads to our customer base. And we could acquire customers at dollars that made that channel very profitable. That was the other one that really helped us get that early momentum that you so desperately need when starting a business.
1: I wanna hear your take on on decisions and trade-offs you had to make in the early version, right? Um, you know, where, where it comes to feature cut or feature simplification or technical debt. You know, I could, I could probably pull out a lot of technical debt from what you just told me, but tell me about some of those trade-offs you had to make and how you coped with those decisions.
0: Clearly already established the technical debt we all unfortunately got ourselves into with Parse and the, un, the the decoupling that that later created, which delivered zero value to customers. You know, so one of the big feature pieces was unintentionally bad. <laughs> we launched on iOS, iPhone only. We didn't have iPad. And then we also didn't have web and we didn't have Android. And it worked okay. We quickly followed, we had a fast follow with iPad. But where we really got ourselves in trouble early on is because we did not have uh, web, we couldn't run Google AdWords advertising because people would search for a term like driver's ed or online driver's ed. And if they found our iPhone app, while that might be amazing for the percent of the audience that had an iPhone and wanted to do this on mobile, it it, it hampered our conversion rate too much by not having web for the rest of the people that were searching for those search terms. It put AdWords off-limits for us from a profitability standpoint in the early days to use it to get any level of traction. So that was definitely something I did not frankly think about as we made just the iOS-only decision. Um, we fast-followed, I don't know, it was probably seven months later when we launched our web version, but it definitely took, uh, took some time to come to that conclusion. On the feature side, there were things like we wanted to create accounts for parents, which had to be a, f- a feature that, that came out later. Agonizing over like which to include. I mean, it's always hard, especially cause you don't want to find yourself in a situation where, where you have regret of like, is it not working because we didn't include this one feature beyond our MVP? I feel like that's such a age old question that people have to wrestle with.
1: Well, what made you choose iOS first over, you know, web or other platforms there?
0: The thesis for the whole business, like the insight was mobile was sort of in, like kind of in its earlier days. I mean, it's still, I think, from an adoption perspective for, for more utility type experiences you have in, have in life. It's still maturing as a platform. But we were, I was like pretty hell bent on mobile, a mobile app being the differentiator in the consumption of this education. There was competitors that had websites, competitors that had web offerings, but we thought the true way to differentiate was through a mobile learning experience that could be consumed on the go. So that was the differentiator that we were very focused on. In doing so, I also, and I think technology's come a a ways through this. There were, more of the hybrid type mobile development platforms you could use that would give you an android app and an ios app but they were like they just weren't as responsive like you could feel that it just wasn't wasn't fast so we went all in on native ios at the time and that was really where we decided that we should start
1: so you've got your mvp right you've got your first product how did you progress the product from there? How did you mature it? And I'm looking for that in the context of how you built your roadmap and decided, okay, this is the next most important thing to build.
0: With early, with early product development, the questions for us really became, okay, we can spend time creating product features that are gonna create a better consumer customer experience, or we can create features that will open up new markets. Early on, we definitely prioritized opening up new markets um i would say it's probably like 80 20 new markets versus new features over time it's probably stayed in that range um maybe 70 30. but the good news is in a, in a market like ours historically and frankly it kind of remains that way today is it is not like an feature arms race from our competitors most the most of the markets we enter in have legacy competitors that have invested very little in differentiation from a product perspective and definitely go a cost differentiation route. So we definitely have prioritized opening up new markets. It's starting to get better as we see, okay, now how do we continue to play up differentiation of the product to create things like word of mouth, higher pass rates for students, things like that. But those were the biggest trade-offs we'd have to make.
1: So let's switch to team. So how did you go about building your team? And I'm curious, you know, how that's evolved over time too. Um, you know, early days, just looking for an engineer and now building out a more polished team. How do you go about, um, you know, finding the people you need and what do you look for in them to indicate that they're the winning horses to join you?
0: I'll split into three pieces, like very, very, very early on and then sort of the middle piece and then sort of where we're at today with it. but. Very early on, I spent so much time trying to find a technical co-founder. I probably spent too much time. For a moment, for about a three month period, I found one and it ended in dramatic, miserable fashion. But where I basically landed was like, I just need to find the people right now that will help me build version one. Like that's number one, because if I don't have version one, I'm gonna have problems. And you know, I think i got lucky on one hand i'm sure i was fairly intentional about it early on hiring people and a lot of those people are still at the company today that were both hungry to be great at what they did but also really kind people that you just enjoyed being around and i think that was sort of like my unintentional hiring rubric till about 14 employees and then once we got to 14 employees uh, based off some really good advice from a friend of mine at the time he said, Hey, you know, it seems like you've built a great culture, but you can't articulate what a great culture is. If you don't start articulating it and defining it, your culture could go any sort of direction and it could be good, but it could also be bad. So at 14 employees in 2015, we stepped back and did a pretty big exercise around that, which then gave us the outline to go proactively recruit. An interview against this criteria. It was unintentionally defining our values early on, but then at at about, I don't know, a year in of sort of the final iteration of the company through the pivots, um, is is spending the time to be intentional about the culture that we wanted.
1: Let's flip to scalability then. So did you build this to scale efficiently in, you know, from day one or were you fighting this as you grew? And I kind of know um, where you're going to go a little bit given your Parse experience, but let's dive into it.
0: You know, the funniest part about that question is the, mo- the reason I was a couple minutes late today as I was meeting with our extended leadership team and we've started doing this. Th- today was actually the first day we did this in our bi-weekly or it's monthly now, monthly leadership team, extended leadership team meeting. We chose to do this round robin format where everyone goes around and quickly says a challenge that they're facing. And then as a group, we sort of vote on the one challenge that we're gonna do a deep dive into. There's 20 different suggestions, and far and away, the biggest one was, are we doing too much with a constrained number of resources? And are we getting enough return on the areas we're spending the most time? And are there other areas where maybe we're getting a lot of return uh, without spending a lot of time, but we're not being intentional or proactive about doing that more? We built for survival. It seemed like every six months there was some existential crisis in the in the business, and I, I think I shielded a lot of the team for it and from it. And really, it was hey, you're gonna run out of money. And we have a pretty capital efficient business model. You know, you're acquiring a customer that's paying up front, uh, and your biggest marginal cost is customer acquisition costs. So like it's pretty pretty capital efficient business, but literally since 2012 there's been a period of time where like is this gonna make it is this what what's gonna happen so i think my for better or worse and quite possibly for worse my my philosophy was like, I just want to be able to have the conversation if we didn't do this in a scalable way, um, while we're still employed by this company. <laughs> First do it in a scalable way and maybe run out of run out of time and their you know, money in there for time. So we've erred definitely on the side of growth, traction, consumers, trying to do it intelligently as you can, but knowing that oftentimes those things are at odds with one another.
1: Well, as you step out on the balcony and you look across all that you've built, what are you most proud of?
0: I'd say it's the people. Yesterday, I talked to one of one of our employees who's been he's been an ace for nine years. He is one of our first. We had two writers that wrote our first driver's ed course, and he was one of them. Uh, and he is moving on nine years later to a new company where he will have much greater responsibility. Then, uh, definitely, then when he had when I met him, you know, back when he was a contract writer that was really wor- willing to work for free, but I did pay him. And I just look at his personal growth as a result of what we were collectively able to build together. And then I think about the other dozens, if not, you know, frankly, I think hundreds of people that have had a similar experience. And to me, that's really, really cool, like to know that I played a role in that. By getting through those hard times and by persisting to uh, fulfill a dream, so I'd say first and foremost our people, and then of course second, you know, we've literally helped millions and millions of people through these educational milestones in their life that open up opportunities for them too. It's probably I just put it second because I haven't met those millions of people, and if I did, maybe I'd feel a little bit differently about it. But let's let's start with our with our team and their their own individual growth.
1: Well, let's flip the script a little bit. So tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it.
0: There was a, a pretty big mistake we made in 2017, 2016, uh, that almost was one of, almost the instigator of one, well, was an instigator of one of those many times where like, is this done? <laughs> or at least is this done in its current state? So we moved into, we chose real estate education as our second vertical or a second educational vertical to get into. From a compliance angle, there's two pieces to it. There's a course you have to take upfront to get your real estate license, and then there's the continuing ed that you have to take typically every two years to maintain your license. We made the decision in, I think, early 2016 sometime to go into real estate education and to start with continuing education. Continuing education is about 20 hours of content. Pre-licensed education, in using the state of Texas as an example, is 180 hours. So we're like, cool, it's a lot cheaper to go into continuing education because the cost to build it, the cost to build the product's gonna be way lower. There's still a bigger question of like, cool, you can start there, but can you sell it? (laughs) Can you sell it profitably? (laughs) Is that the right place to start in the customer's minds? All sorts of other questions that I would say I overlook. March of 2017, we launched real estate education, continuing ed in the state of Texas. You know it's a big deal because up to this point every investor i had met with said all right like this is cute this growth in driving like that's great that's not like well a autonomous cars are going to be here any second now so that's not a good market so prove to me that you can do this in one more more than one educational vertical it's like cool well we're going to launch real estate education and prove it to you continuing ed bombed we could not spend enough to get any level of traction that was meaningful. And I distinctly remember being in a board meeting where no one's happy. There's lots of questions. Like and there was two ways to look at it. One, and we had a board member that said something that I'll never forget. We could all sit here and be like, okay, well you could you could conclude Aceable's a one one trick pony, right? Like one vertical is where we can be successful. We can never be successful in more verticals. That's like one end of the spectrum. But thankfully, Charles was like, "Well, what if continuing education is just a false negative? What if continuing education in Texas is just a false negative? And like by not moving forward with another shot, we'll never know. And it's probably therefore worth at least having discussion of like, well, what does the second swing look like? And because of that conversation, and we had already started doing this under the surface, started working on the Texas pre-license course. And thankfully, we were able to get you know, the board, the board's buy-in and internal buy-in to say like, Hey, we think it actually makes more sense to start at the beginning of somebody's career. And the reason we can't actually sell continuing education is, they already know real estate agents at this point, already know all these other brands. They've taken continuing education somewhere before. We're like trying to break that uh, that chain of continuity with a new brand that they've never heard of. Like, why would they switch? So how about we just start upstream with pre-licensed education? So we, we doubled down, tripled down our efforts to get pre-licensed education approved. Um, it launched February of 2018 and You know, after a few really hard weeks where it'd have like one sale, zero sales, two sales, zero sales, it finally started hitting five sales, 10 sales, 15 sales, 20 sales, and this is on a $400 product. So the math started working pretty fast, but we definitely made a mistake on continuing it in real estate and one, one that we can't forget as we think about additional future verticals.
1: Well, what does the future look like for the product and for your team?
0: When we think about the product we think in both horizontal growth but also what i'll call vertical growth which is a little confusing when i talk about educational verticals it's kind of different actually horizontal growth for us looks like new educational areas that we enter into so this past uh summer we actually bought a company in the healthcare education space and we're really excited about the opportunity to help healthcare providers To help healthcare providers um, improve patient outcomes i mean it is a huge a huge ask to try to do that through continuing education which is the first tip of the spear but that's what we're looking at uh, because we think that's a really important role that we can help play in this world to help those healthcare providers feel more confident in their abilities to drive those patient outcomes Um, and if we can play a small role in that pretty excited about it so healthcare and you know. Literally, there's 22 professions we're looking at in healthcare <coughs> to go create that type of impact. Um, and then when I talk about vertical, it's how can we how can we help this customer achieve other things that they need. So, for instance, in driving, getting a driver's license is is a step. But two other two other points that are interesting. One, you need a car. You need insurance. You need financing for that car. Um, You might need roadside assistance to go along with the fact you can drive now. You have other needs as they relate to this um, moment in your life. So we're doing more and more to help make answering those questions really easy for the consumer. So we feel that's part of what we're being hired to do. So that's one. And then the other piece is, you also need other types of education, potentially around that time in life. So you can look at a real estate agent, like because you take our course to go past the real estate exam, you're kind of now just thrown in the deep end of a new industry where you really don't know what you're doing and how, so how can we help you sell your first home, sell your first 10 homes, feel confident when you're doing your first open house, set up your first open house, right? So we actually think there's more education out there that our customers need and more training that our customers need that are not, that is not compliance based. So we're pretty excited about that as well.
1: Let's switch to you, Blake. Who influences the way that you work? Name a CEO, CTO, architect, really any person that you look up to and why.
0: There's a a CEO in Austin. His name's Mark McLean. Mark is the founder and CEO of a company called SailPoint. SailPoint went public two or three years ago now. And Mark's one of the lowest ego people I have ever met. Maybe like if you looked at the inverse correlation between his business success and his ego, like the distance between those two points is the widest I've ever seen. Mark is always willing to help others. He's always just joyful. And I mean, he runs a public company. Like, you know, there's plenty of reason, plenty of plenty of inputs giving him reason not to be joyful. But as I look at the demeanor, his selflessness and the way he carries himself and his overall kindness on top of just being a stellar CEO it's pretty inspiring to see that you can you can reach those heights without having to either let's just say like, without needing to compromise maybe who you are and who you want to be
1: well we talked about a mistake but a little bit different spin if you could go back to the beginning what would you do differently or where would you consider taking a different approach
0: as I you know follow various podcasts and and listen to different thought leaders. I think David Sachs recently had a, he likes to talk about creating a, especially the consumer business, and maybe he focuses on consumer subscription, but I think it's still relevant in both consumer, I don't know, transactional, (laughs) uh, as well, is single player versus multiplayer. And like if you think about Strava, it started as like, oh, I just want to map like the distance of my run and where I went, but then now I can add Friends to follow, see their runs. They can comment on mine. Things like that. And as I think early on, when we built our product, we actually prioritized creating a separate experience for the parent to be involved with Driver's Ed. And I think later we ended up actually unwinding it because it created it created complexity in our code base and our product that we didn't feel like was warranted. Um, for the benefit that it gave us. But I think in hindsight, that probably wasn't the right decision because I actually think that was the beginning of sort of this multiplayer concept with online education. So online education, as in like my perspective, I think others say this, you can look at the data around pass rates and completion rates, for things like MOOCs. It's an incredibly lonely experience and if you can make it more multiplayer whether it's your family whether it's your friends whether it's complete strangers so you don't feel as alone i think that is a great motivator motivator to help people grit through the long experiences that these courses can often have so i think there is if i could redo anything at least in this moment uh probably go back to whenever we made that decision in 2015 and say maybe let's just think about how we do this in a more scalable way, Uh, maybe a different way to solve some of those complexity challenges we were trying to solve in that moment um, versus getting rid of it altogether. I think it would have been interesting to see how we could have built upon that. The good news is the door is not completely closed on it, so quite quite still still the opportunity to change it is still there just would be nice if we took a different path earlier on
1: well last question so you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing they're jazzed about it they can't wait to show it off to the world can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane what advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit
0: i think it's find people that are smart and experienced in areas that is directly relatable, not necessarily just smart and experienced in life, um, directly relatable, and do not be afraid to A, share your thoughts, ideas, and plans to get real feedback. Don't just search out positive feedback. As I think that going through like an accelerator program, for instance, the confirmation bias just like runs rampant. It's like, let me find the people that are going to think this is a great idea and not truly challenge it. I think find the people that are going to challenge it. And then the really, really hard part is on one hand to have the humility to decide who you're going to, to listen to some of it, but you can't also listen to all of it. Otherwise it will be crippling. So it's really finding and distilling down to like, which voices are you going to listen to and really let influence your path, but you have to be willing to let those people in. Like, I could have easily not listened to that guy in 2013 that told me the idea was awful. Um, But then I also could have listened to whoever gave me the advice of what he thought might be good. And I think in that case, it was good advice. But I got lots of other advice that I didn't listen to before that moment. And probably some of it was good, some of it was bad. And really being able to discern the difference and being open-minded enough to be disagreed with is so important. I've watched so many people fail because they weren't willing to listen to good advice or they listened to all the advice and then they just became like a little sailboat that would just go with whatever the wind of the day was. Both result in failure.
1: That's fantastic advice. Well, Blake, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the creation story of Aceable.
0: Noah, thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. Definitely some trips down memory lane that uh, I'll probably leave this conversation thinking about like, am I listening to my own advice right now?